Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege and the just gift it is to gather together and for your word to be opened. And we ask that you would speak to us through it tonight, that you would, um, by your spirit, let it land on our hearts as it needs to. Let it convict us where we need convicted. Let it encourage us where we need encouraged. Um, we just ask that you would use it for whatever your will is tonight, that you would not let me get in the way of that, and that you would glorify yourself in this time. And we thank you for your love for us, and it's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. So we've come to the final week of our Psalm 119 series. Finally, it feels like after four months of like off and on because of different things, we've taken Sundays off. We finally come to the final week. And what we've seen throughout is the immeasurable worth of the written word of God. That has been the psalmist's overarching theme that has run through everything that he said. Time and again, he has pointed to the value, to the sweetness, to the delight, to the beauty, to the truth, to the wisdom, to the comfort of God's written word. And then secondarily, there's been the theme of affliction. The psalmist in just about every single stanza that we've looked at thus far in some way relates the word to his affliction. And there really aren't any other like main points or themes of the entire psalm. It is that the word is to be valued above all else and that affliction has come to the psalmist's door. And what we've talked about is how those two themes aren't separate for the psalmist. They don't just happen to be in this chapter together. They aren't just two separate themes in one, but they are linked somehow. There's a reason that these two themes of affliction and of the word take up the psalmist's attention for 176 verses. And in tonight's stanza, he is going to link those two aspects together, affliction and the word, in a more explicit way than he has up to this point. In these stanzas, he's going to tell us why. Why is there this correlation between the two? Why has he gone on and on about these two things? We've been able to discuss a little bit of that and give our best hints and guesses in our discussion groups, and we've even ventured to talk about it in the talks from up here. But the psalmist himself has not told us why yet, what this connecting link is between suffering and the word. He just tells us that he's afflicted and that he rests in the word. And so tonight we're going to be in verses 153 through 176. Um, and those three stanzas are Resh. And then the second one has kind of two names. It's Sin and Shin, which I'll just refer to it as Sin Shin. Um, and you can laugh at that every time I say it. And then the final one will be Tau. And as I've studied it this week, I really think that Resh and Tau are basically saying the same thing. Like it would almost be a waste of time to treat the two totally separately because as we're going to see, they really take up the same points, the same emphasis. And then Sin Shin is totally like a block in between the two. It doesn't go with the two surrounding it. At least it doesn't seem clear why it does. And so what we're going to do is walk through Resh, make some observations, look at it. What is Resh talking about? And then we're going to look at Tau. We're going to go a little deeper because it gives a little more information about what they're both talking about. And then we'll spend the close of our time in Sin and Shin together. So let's read Resh. This is verses 153 through 160. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look 
at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And so immediately off the bat, we have our two themes again of affliction and the word. Look at 153. Look at my affliction and deliver me. And then he brings in the word. For I do not forget your law. So there's this connection again between the psalmist's affliction and the word. And it also occurs occurs in verse 154. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Now, there the word affliction isn't used, but there's still this desire for redemption, for salvation. And if you need redeemed or saved, it's because something or someone, maybe even yourself, is afflicting you, and so you cry out for word or for help. And again, he connects it. Give me life according to your word. And the same thing continues throughout this entire stanza. 156, he says, Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life, how? According to your rules. And then 159 at the end, Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. And so, There are these themes we've encountered throughout the entirety of Psalm 119. Word and affliction. I'm afflicted, save me by your word, or look at how I trust in your word. He always brings it back every single time to God's word. But again, why? He doesn't say. Look at Tao. This is 169 through 176. Let my cry come before you, O Lord, Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. And so largely, again, the same thing we just saw in Resh with this link of the word and affliction. 173, let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law, or your word, is my delight. Verse 75, let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. It runs throughout the whole thing. Affliction, and then some kind of connection to the word. But maybe you noticed, as I just read through that list and pointed out things, I left out two verses at the beginning, 169 and 170. And I did so because I think verses 169 and 170 make the connection between the word and affliction in the most unmistakable way in the entire Psalm 119. Look at how they're structured. Look at 169 and 170. 169 starts with, let my cry come before you. Verse 170 starts with, let my plea come before you. Word for word, the exact same, except for 169 uses cry and 170 uses plead. And I think we would agree those aren't that different of words, if they're even different at all. And then look at how they end. They both end with the same four words, according to your word. The only difference 
between verse 169 and verse 170 is what is asked for in the middle of them. In 169, the psalmist says, give me understanding. And in 170, he says, deliver me. So everything in these two verses is the exact same. You could take parts of the verses and interchange them and they would be the same exact verses. You could take the petitions and swap them. They'd read the exact same way, just in a different order. You could take the beginning of one and switch it with the beginning of the other. They would say the exact same thing. Again, also with the end of how they end. How, or you could switch the endings of how the verses end and they would say the same thing. And that is interesting. That's unique because it seems like they're not asking for the same thing. In one verse, he's asking for understanding. In the second verse, he's asking for deliverance. So what should we make of all that? I don't think the author wants us to read these two verses and say, okay, cool. He's asking for two totally distinct and separate things. If that was the case, then why the minute, minuscule similarity between the two verses and how they're constructed? Now, I think the author sets up the two verses exactly the same way, literally, word for word, the same way, so that we wouldn't see these two things as separate requests, so that we wouldn't separate the two petitions, but that we would see them as two in one, as two sides of the same coin, as one in the same, as one going with the other. I think the psalmist constructs these verses the way he does so that we would be forced to see that asking for understanding and asking for deliverance is asking for the same thing. I think he wanted to structure these verses in such a way so that we would see the petitions as interchangeable and we would see them as interchangeable so that we would see that deliverance from affliction according to God's word and understanding according to God's word go together just like we've seen throughout the entirety of the psalm. And he finally here unmistakably leaves you without an option, makes clear deliverance salvation, life, blessing, all the different words he has used throughout this psalm and understanding or knowing God's law, being taught God's word are inextricably linked. One does not exist apart from the other. There is no deliverance apart from understanding. And there is no understanding that does not ultimately lead to deliverance. Deliverance and understanding go together. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know that it's immediately obvious why it works that way. Like, it's clear, I think, that there is this connection, that understanding and deliverance are tied together, but I don't know why. Like, why does it work that way? The psalmist is always saying, I'm afflicted, and then something along the lines of, but I do not forget your law, like we just saw in verse 153. It's clear the psalmist is afflicted, and it's clear that time and again he goes to the word. There's something about the word that solves or fix or is the solution to his affliction. But why that is the case hasn't been totally laid out for us yet. Like, why is it that deliverance and understanding are so connected? Why can't you have deliverance without understanding? If if the psalmist is saying you can't have one without the other, why? Why can't I have understanding but somehow miss out on, on deliverance? Or Vice versa, why can't I get delivered if I miss out on the understanding? Why must they go together? Even in what we just saw in verses 169 and 170, where it's made explicit that this is how it works, that they can't be separated, where it's clear that deliverance and affliction, 
or deliverance from affliction and understanding God's word go hand in hand and one can't be had without the other, I am still left wondering, well, why is that the case? Like, how does it work that way? Why did God set it up this way? Why can't you have one without the other? How does that work? For example, back in verse 25, all the way back. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. But back in verse 25 of Psalm 119, he says, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. So it's clear that the psalmist sees the word as the answer to his soul clinging to the dust. That's even what I taught when we went through that stanza several months ago. That's what he asks for, is that with his soul clinging to the dust, give me life according to your word. And I want to know why. Like, why the word? Why not, my soul clings to the dust, give me life according to your grace? Why not give me life according to your mercy? Why not give me life according to your steadfast love or according to any other aspect of God's nature and being? Why is it according to the word? What about the word is the solution to the psalmist's soul clinging to the dust? This isn't just an inter- like an interesting you know, intellectual curiosity thing. I don't want to know just to know. I don't want to know just so I can like have memorized this formulaic thing. I want to know because I want to view this book like the psalmist does. Like every time he brings up affliction, he says something about this book, that it would meet him, that he would find solace in it. And I want to operate that way. And so even if I know in my head there is this direct connection between affliction and the word or deliverance and understanding, I can know that in my head, but I want to know it here. I want to be convinced of it in my bones. And him telling me this is how it works is great. And I'm fine to just trust him. But what I really want is to actually have the affections for God's word that this psalmist has. And I think if I could find the why, like why it works this way, how it works that way, then perhaps my heart would be inclined to view this book like the psalmist views it. And so I want to know why or how or what the connection is. So it's clear from 169 and 170, and really the entire psalm, that deliverance and understanding God's word go together. They can't be separated. And so if we are afflicted and want deliverance, and true deliverance, which is deliverance into the presence of God, then it is only going to come by this book and our understanding of it. But we need to, at least I feel the need, to ask why that works that way. Why it's not just the right answer that that's how it works, but actually, why does it work that way? So that my heart will be convinced of it and treat this book like he does. And so here's the question I want to ask. Why and how are deliverance and understanding linked? Or better, like a better way to ask that question, why is understanding the word the means to deliverance? What about understanding the word leads to deliverance into God's presence? Thankfully, I'm not going to stand up here for 15 minutes and give you my best guess. Because in Sin Shin, the author gives us the answer to that question. He shows us what the link is. I don't know why he goes in the order he does, but he gives us the answer there. So let's look at verses 161 
through 168. This is sin and shin. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. The psalmist is still discussing affliction. And yet his main attention in this stanza turns away from the affliction and to his own responses to the scripture. Every verse but two, the first one, 161, and then a rando verse in 165, Every verse includes an I statement. I rejoice at your word, verse 162. I hate falsehood, 163. I love your law, 163 again. I praise you for your righteous rules, 164. I hope for your salvation, 166. I do your commandments, 166 again. I keep your testimonies and I love them exceedingly, 167. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, 168. And so what we have in sin and shin is a kind of interlude of affection and trust in the word between Resh and Tau. He knows that the scriptures lead to life and deliverance. That's what he talks about in Resh, and it's what he returns to again in Tau. And that knowledge of the word being the deliverance of the affliction produces two things that he talks about in Sinshin. One, a deep love for, for and treasuring of God's written word. And two, an equally deep desire to keep, guard, and do God's written word. There's the mention of affliction in 161, then three verses of where his hope is, the word. It's not so much action, although he does mention he rejoices, but it's more of a heart posture towards the word. And then in 166 through 68, he gives action steps. I hope, I keep, I do, I love your law. And then in the middle, there's this verse, 165, that breaks it all up. Like if I'm writing this stanza, I start with the affliction, and then I'm, if I'm going to do all these I statements, I'm not interrupting them. I'm just letting all the I statements flow, and maybe I end with 165, like I move it to the bottom. But to put it in the middle, like why? What's the deal with that? He breaks up all the I statements with this general kind of random verse in 165. As I've thought about why the psalmist would do that this week, I think it's because verses 162 through 164 don't sound like an appropriate response to 161. Like, look at 161. To our human ears, that verse does not make logical sense. We may and we should take it as true, but to say that that's how we think or that's how we would have guessed he would finish the sentence just isn't true. Like, if princes rulers are persecuting with you without cause to respond with 162 through 164 is weird if we're honest and maybe you felt that way throughout the entire psalm like every time he brings up affliction and then says oh but your word like it's felt flat like really psalmist like that's how you're responding to affliction that sounds right i'm sure that's the right christian churchy answer but how in the world is you standing in awe of the word 
How is your rejoicing in the word, your loving the word, the solution to the affliction? That doesn't solve the affliction. That doesn't make the affliction go away. Otherwise, we wouldn't still be talking about this 175 verses later. So why, when princes are coming after your head, do you respond with, but I love the word? I mean, imagine if this was me writing. Like, pretend me and Sydney, we move overseas. We're like working with an unreached people group, closed country, and we get word that the government is going to like kick us out or worse. And so like me and you are writing letters back and forth and you're like, ask me how we're doing. And I tell you, well, the princes persecute me without cause, but I love the word. Like that, you would say that's great. Like those are two great separate statements. Like princes are persecuting me, period. I also love the word. Those are two separate logical statements. To say the statement like, princes are persecuting me, but, and then like the solution or the like answer to that is, but I just love the word. You would think that's weird. You might think, oh, Zach, what a great Christian. He loves the word, but it wouldn't make sense. Like you'd be like, Zach, that doesn't solve the issue of the princes persecuting you. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't answer that issue. The truth is that as far as human wisdom goes, standing in awe of God's word is not a solution to princes coming for your head. Unless verse 165 is true. Great peace, this is 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. If that is true, if that statement is true, then it makes perfect sense to respond to princely persecution by declaring your love for the word. Because apparently, according to 165, nothing can cause those to stumble who love the word. And so the conversation between me and the prince, if they're still doing the situation of me in a close country with an unreached people group, goes like this. The prince comes up, and says, I'm going to persecute you without cause. And I respond and say, well, I love the written word. And the prince looks at me confused. Well, how does that solve anything? Like, <laughs> I'm still gonna persecute you without cause. And then I say, verse 65, because great peace have those who love God's law. And I'll need peace if I'm going to endure this. Nothing can make them stumble. And I want to remain faithful to my Lord as you persecute me. Many of us wonder, like maybe you've sat in a college dorm room or just with your friends, or you've just wondered by yourself at home, like, would I stand up under persecution? Like if Columbine or some horrible thing happened and someone put a gun to my head and said, do you believe in Jesus? If you do, I'm gonna pull the trigger. We all are like, would I really have the guts to stand there and say yes? And that's a fine thought exercise, like whoopie dippy, you know, do that. But that's never gonna happen to you, not likely. What we should think over instead, what we should ponder instead, is how will we stand under or sorry, affliction and suffering, which is promised to us on this side of glory? Like, how do you know that you're not going to buckle? Like, when the worst thing you can imagine happening actually happens in your life, because it likely will, how can you be sure that you won't turn your back on God? How do you know you'll make it? How do you know you'll go the 70 years, the rest of your life 
with all the affliction and all the suffering that it will hold, how can you be sure that you will make it to the end? How do you know you won't stumble under the weight of affliction? Because great peace have those who love your law. Nothing, nothing can make them stumble. Nothing. For those who love the word, there is nothing that can make them stumble. And that is the logical link between affliction or deliverance from affliction and understanding God's word. There is no deliverance without the word because without the word, we will not withstand the affliction we will face in this life, but will stumble under it and therefore fail to enter into the deliverance that God wants for us, which only comes through his word. If it is God's word that brings peace and trials and upholds us so that we don't stumble under the pressure, then it actually makes no sense to respond in any other way than declaring our love for this word or pleading with God to help us love it more. For this word, this book, is what makes our perseverance possible. This is the reason that throughout the psalm, the writer continually brings up his love and delight for God's word in the face of affliction. It's because he knows that God's word is the source of his own remaining faithful to Yahweh and nothing else. He is convinced that it is the means of his not turning away from God. He knows that if he is going to not stumble, if he is going to make it through this affliction he is experiencing, it will only be by being carried on the back of the written word of God. He knows that if he lets go of this book, of this word, or maybe better, that if this book and what it says lets go of him, then his deliverance will falter. He will miss out on being delivered into God's presence. Deliverance from affliction into God's presence is inextricably connected to the word because it is the word that upholds those in affliction and keeps them from stumbling away from deliverance into God's presence. Now, I want to clarify something. I've mentioned just recently, and this isn't in my notes, but I feel like I just want to clarify. When I talk about missing out on deliverance or how do you know you'll make it, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will make it. If the Spirit has resurrected your heart and you are a new creation, there is no becoming an old one. There is no missing out on the salvation Jesus has bought for you. All I'm saying is that this book is the tool that God uses as the means for getting you to the end. This book, not in a legalistic way, you better read it or you might miss out on heaven, but no, this book is just what brings the peace and the confidence and the strength from the human side of things to continue on through life and all the affliction we will have. So I just want to state clearly, when I say miss out on deliverance, I mean more so miss out on the peace and the deliverance God offers you here and now, experientially, knowing him in the affliction as you can now. I do not mean ultimately one day in heaven. This book will deliver us in the moment, and it will be the means that carries us. When we look back on our lives, we'll be like, this is the book. The Spirit through this book and through his people are the reason I was kept to the end. That's why he's given us the book. So, clarification out of the way. The word is what brings peace. 
The word is what keeps us from stumbling in affliction. And so deliverance and the word just cannot be separated. And so if deliverance and the written scriptures are tied up together like this, then in the face of the affliction you want delivered from, the only thing that makes sense for you to do is go to this book, to pour over it, to treasure it up, and to do it. Which is what I want to draw your attention to as we close. The way Sin Shin is structured, you have a mention of affliction, then three verses that are more like postures towards Scripture. I'm afflicted, but I stand in awe. I rejoice at, I love your written word, and I praise you for it. That's the first half of Sin Shin. Then you get in 165, this general truth about Scripture, what it does for those being afflicted, justifying why those postures actually make sense in light of persecution, not seem weird. And then right on the heels of that, there are three verses of actions in light of this reality of the word keeping us from stumbling. I hope for your salvation. I do and keep your word. That's what he says in 166 through 168. And so verse 165, the tremendous reality that this book keeps us in the midst of our suffering and delivers us into God's peace and presence causes those being kept by it, by this book, to respond by keeping it. This book keeps us and that motivates us to keep it, if that makes sense, to guard it, to learn from it, to understand it, to do as it instructs. If it is God's word that brings peace in trials and upholds us so that we don't stumble under the pressure, then it actually makes no sense to respond in any other way than to go to this book. The word and affliction, or maybe now we should just say the word and deliverance through affliction. These are the two great themes of Psalm 119. The word and deliverance go together. And there is no having one without the other because the word is what keeps those who love it from stumbling in affliction because it is the word where we engage with the God who is our deliverance. It is our kite string to him. And so in affliction, when princes persecute us without cause, when the medical test comes back with the results we were praying most against, when the loved one is no longer around, when the world is crashing down, we go to this book and it is found solace. In it is found peace. It keeps us from stumbling under the crushing weight of affliction and suffering. Like the disciples responded after many had left Jesus, and Jesus looks at them and says, are you not leaving too? And they respond, we respond similarly to this book. Where else would we go in affliction? Like, what else would we turn to? You, Jesus, through this book to us, have the words of life. It alone is the witness to him. It alone is from him. Where else would we go? This book will keep us and nothing else. So let's go to this book. Let's treasure it and find fullness of life and perfect peace and know the sweet truth that nothing, nothing can make a stumble away from the deliverance that Christ has purchased for us. And we will experience that sweet reality when we go to this book seeking that Christ.